As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, we'll be discussing the international break, specifically when it comes to England, as they prepare to take on Italy and Germany. Does Harry Maguire still have a place as an England starter? Can Ivan Tony work his way into that 11? And is this the last chance for Trent Alexander-Arnold? We'll also be talking about the One Love armband campaign and whether players should be more vocal about speaking out against the World Cup in Qatar. But we will also talk a little bit later on about whether the FA could do more when it comes to this and what happens next when it comes to an independent regulator and also the important questions if Carl Walker is quicker than a Jaguar what else could footballers do better than animals this is the game hello and welcome back to the game podcast I'm Hugh Wisencroft today alongside Jonathan Northcroft and Alison Rudd, and the international break is upon us. The last two matches before the Winter World Cup in Qatar for England, they play Nations League games with Italy on Friday night in Milan and then face Germany at Wembley on Monday night. But it is four games without a win after a torrid summer in the Nations League for England. Their last game was a 4-0 defeat at home against Hungary. And the question is really, how big an issue do England and Gareth Southgate have right now with all the pressure building on them ahead of the World Cup? A team that was meant to be favourites certainly doesn't look like that at the moment, or at least amongst the favourites. Jonathan, I'll start with you. How big is the issues for Gareth Southgate right now? I think this is um, these fixtures have changed actually from being sort of warm-ups to quite pressing uh, engagements where England need to answer some questions and 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 you know get some semblance of a plan and and form back together because the the June internationals were were deeply worrying but they didn't come in isolation I think there's been a sort of tail off in performance over since the Euros anyway and you know it leaves I think there's just think there's questions in every department now um, certainly defensively after that four 0 thrashing but it was very easy for Hungary to cut through but that came after the one nil in Budapest and and sort of fairly underwhelming performances in the other games. I know they got the draw in Germany, but I don't think they played massively well. Big problems in midfield. The injury to Calvin Phillips, I think, throws... Gareth's plans up in the air because his, his, his central pairing was going to be Declan Rice and, and Calvin Phillips. Now he's got to to try and work out what he's doing in there. And I still don't think he's found a, a satisfactory way to use the, the all the attacking players or, or the right blend to, to get the best of the talent that he's got. 
So it feels like there's been a regression since the Euros and they've got these two games and they're really tough games as well. They're the kind of games that they could come a cropper in again with, with, with anything less than decent performances. You know, he's, he needs to work out what the midfield's going to be. He needs to address the Harry Maguire question, which I'm sure we're going to get onto. And he, he needs to work out what he's doing around Harry Kane and Raheem Sterling as, as, as ever. So a lot to, a lot in, in his entry to, you know, Certainly, the, the game in Milan is going to be really difficult for England and, and two important performances coming up. How big is the pressure now, Alison, on Gareth Southgate? Because saying England were to lose these two games or not win either of these two games, would it, would it almost be six games without a win going into the World Cup? We almost would all feel as if Gareth Southgate inevitably would be leaving despite what would happen at the World Cup if we don't already feel that that way. But obviously, you know, if your team's not playing well when you arrive at the World Cup, you know, there will almost be a defeatist attitude amongst a lot of fans. Um, not necessarily. I think I think you could package it as if you go into the World Cup on the back of <laughs> a run of really quite dispiriting and poor results, then you've got you're going slightly under the radar. You're not the team to be feared, which is quite a come down from being the finalist at the Euros. I I, I accept that, but there's been the way England did not on home soil manage to win the Euros. Instead of it being, oh, it was a close shave and how wonderful we got to the final, it, 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 it has generally been perceived as a failure and not a glorious failure either. And so the results since, I think, have been part of that mood, if you like, that, oh, you know, we came up short, what's wrong with us? And I think if you go into the World Cup without that, label on your back as being ooh, you know one of the one of the big teams one of the scary teams and instead being regarded as less than the sum of its parts and you know the same old england they might you know they might get out of the group stage and then you know, potluck i don't think given that gareth knows the team so well and has tried to build this camaraderie i think he, he th- i think he's capable of turning that into something into a let's show them lads you know let's we know we're better than this and I think I think the best managers do learn more from defeat anyway. You know, these games are not that significant. What really matters is what happens at the World Cup. You should really use them not for a win at all costs where you don't learn anything, but you learn more about what you have at your disposal and how you dovetail everything together. I don't necessarily, what I'm saying is I don't think it's necessarily, you know, the most awful thing in the world for England to start the World Cup with people having a bit of a downer on them. But, it's, but it does it does mean that a lot is required of Southgate to turn that into no one likes us, we don't care sort of thing. Um, and that's not impossible because there is a lot of individual talent. There always is with England. So and maybe, maybe that sense of fear and disappointment might be the galvanizing factor to make them just look more more united than they often do, I think. But I do, I do think if you were to sort of write an ac- academic paper on <laughs> on England under Southgate, I think it's fascinating that to not that to fail in a penalty shootout has had this debilitating effect on them. It really ought to be part of a trajectory towards glory at the World Cup. But it, no way would anyone argue that. So how do you use these two games, if you're Gareth Southgate then, to try and find some form or, or maybe you try something different? So do you play the same formation, same personnel, just try and get better or back to what you've done previously well? 
Or do you look, say, look, something's not working here. We haven't got the exact same players we want to use. We need to find a new formula, a new recipe. Let's try something a little bit different in these two games and see if we can we can find something to, to take into the World Cup that maybe could hurt our opponents. That's a little bit different. What would you do, Johnny? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of worry it's too late to try the things that ought to be tried. So the biggest issue for me, and, and, and it, I think it's right to use the that Euros final as a kind of starting point, you know, when England was so close to glory, but they'd come up short, I think, because of a, a very old failing, which is just getting outplayed in midfield where another team controls the game. And you can then go down to the granular thing of the penalty shootout. But ultimately, that game went away from England the way the World Cup semi-final did because they, they didn't control the game from a winning position. So I think at that point, that was a point to move to 4-3-3, away, back away from you know, three, four, three or three, five, two for good and try and do something more proactive, um, have better possession in midfield, play a more sort of risky and positive style of football, push the, the line higher up, maybe have a different blend in defence and look at look at these things. But we're two games from the World Cup now. So that, that's that's what I would like England to have done. The calculation now is whether it's worth in these two games even trying that or... Do you go safe and say, right, we are going to be playing the same style that we played in the last two tournaments. We are going to be 3-5-2. Therefore, we've just got to try and fit the pegs into that 3-5-2. But if, if you're asking what I'd like to see happen, I suppose what I would be going into this tournament with would be a different blend in defence. So I'd, I'd want Tamori probably is the best candidate to go in there with a bit, a bit more pace and enable England to push a little bit higher up the pitch in a back four. I'd be trying Tamori and Stones. At right back, I think it's got to be James or or Trent. You want a more positive option. Kyle Walker, brilliant as he is in many ways. If England had a different blend of players, if England were Man City, you could play Kyle Walker. But I think England need a little bit more creativity in the team generally. So you want a creative fullback. Uh, left back, you've got to worry about Luke Shaw, whether he's he's tournament ready. It's even curious to see him in the in the squad. So I think you've got to find out who your left back is. And I'm not going to go through the entire team, but I think the other priority would be in midfield. Jude Bellingham has got to be a starter for England in my book. He's by far the, the inform English midfielder and outstanding talent. So I'd be looking at ways to, to build him into midfield and, and get that right blend. And then there's the questions at the top of the pitch. But um, but those, those, those would be what I'd be looking for. My worry is, as I said, we're two games from the tournament and he, it, he might have left it too late to try anything different. But he's always... All, I mean, the nature of being the international manager is you're always... You're always trying something different. I, I think mm. it's the ability to, to handle that. And you mentioned Calvin Phillips. Well... You've got you've yeah. got to think. Well, I'm 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 the manager of England. I can pick all sorts of people. I don't need to cling. You just tend to cling. You're right. You're dead right. No, that that's a that's a great example. We should England shouldn't be in in a position where losing Calvin Phillips is suddenly a crisis. There should, there's lots of other options that should be tried. But as you say, he he has tended to. He's used a lot of players yet clinging to a group of favourites and a, and, a, and a particular formation. Well, let's talk about one of those favourites then. Harry Maguire, out of favourite Manchester United, back into the England fold. Should he remain a starter? I think, Jonathan, in many ways, you've already answered that. But, Alison, yeah. what do you think? I think for him not to be a starter would require something 
quite radical to be happening to the brain of Gareth Southgate. I think he would see this as a deep lying principle of his and about his character as a man, as well as a manager, that you don't, he thinks he knows Harry Maguire well. He'd had an eye on him long before anyone thought he was going to be an England starter because he had that thing. Let's all remember what he used to be like, Harry Maguire. He was different because he had he had a good, the right stature to be an imposing defender, but he would carry the ball out of defence. And he looked like he could be England's answer to, you know, the, the Italian greats who, who are just so composed at the back and know when to move forward and distribute. And I think Southgate thought, this is a player I could build my team around. And I like him. I like him as a person. I think he's great. And he's stuck with him through his ups and downs. And he's had ups as well, Harry Maguire, let's not forget. It isn't all downers. He's had, he's had great moments as well. And But now we're in a position where football is evolving faster than Gareth Southgate is evolving. The, the, you know, it's very hard to be an effective defender if you're slow and slow on the turn. And they're the two things that Maguire has not got. You know, he's not got that ability to, to move quickly. And you can't have a high line with him. It's not easy. And his new manager, who's very tactically astute by all accounts, has decided to be brave and say, no, no, I can't, I can't run my team with him in it. And that leaves Gareth Southgate with this, mor- it's a mor- it shouldn't matter. Gareth Southgate shouldn't be thinking of it as a moral dilemma. But I think he does. I think he thinks if he drops Harry Maguire, what does that say about Gareth Southgate, the man? What does that say to the rest of the team about loyalty, and hard work and integration and giving your all for your country. What does that say about me? What does it say about them? What does it say about us? And I think he'll find it almost too difficult. It would be like chopping off his arm to say, yeah, yeah, I can dump him. I can be ruthless. And so I think I think he'll stay and I think it'll be probably the wrong thing to do. But don't you see Eric Dyer provides Gareth Southgate with a new story, you know, bouncing back in the England team, cast aside, no, this player, Eric Dyer, scoring penalties to win shootouts at the last World Cup. I can bring Eric back in and still show everyone that I am loyal to my players. You know, there's a better story in many ways than Harry Maguire back in the England fold. It solves the issue politically and in terms of the public relations too for Gareth Southgate. It's, it's, it's a gem for him at this point in time, Johnny. It's got to be Eric Dyer from here on out. <laughs> yeah, well, if, I, look, I, I, I love Eric Dyer as a guy and, and he's had a fantastic season for Tottenham. And and yeah, it, that, that would be a really uh, nice story. But actually, there's a similarity with Eric Dyer and Harry Maguire, which is that they're both far better in a back three and they both get, you know, have slight problems because of, of, of the neither of them are, are rapid in, in a, a, a sort of aggressive 4-3-3. So it comes back to the the style question. And I mentioned Tamori because you've got a guy who's been outstanding for AC Milan since you know, for two, two and a half seasons. Uh, is at the top of his game who, who, for me, was the best of the England defenders in those June internationals. And I can see him and Stones being a really good partnership in a, in, in a back four. 
Harry Maguire has done nothing wrong for England. Let me say that he's done nothing wrong for England. He's he's been a, as Alison said, he he was he was a, a find by Gareth. He's he was a he was a magic player for him in the sense that he made that three four three work. He was the the guy that could bring the ball out. Um, he was also brilliant at set pieces in the World Cup when England were doing the love train and all that sort of stuff. But football's evolved as again as Alison said, it's, it's changed, and I'm just not sure if England are gonna. Get, take that extra step playing a, a conservative three four three or three five two. I just don't. I I don't believe that that is going to win the World Cup for England, and that's got to be the mission. And therefore, a more proactive game, I think, has to be tried. And and you see, I don't think you can do it with Harry. The parallel, I think, I'm not that I'm obsessed with Tim Ream at Fulham, but the parallel is with Tim Ream at Fulham. Tim Ream is having an outstanding <laughs> season, a standing season, but his coach. His coach for the America team doesn't want him in the squad because he knows he's too slow. And he's, it, they, America believe if they're going to do anything, at the, even at the group stage, it's going to be, have to be built on athleticism, mm. high line, pace, go for it. That's what they've got. They've got athleticism. And America have, America have realized the game has changed. And it, no matter how wonderful a captain, no matter how influential on the team, Tim Ream can be that that's not for them, and it's it's a bit similar in in with Gareth Southgate. He really has to say, you know, I love him, to, I love him to death, I love him to death, old maggers. But I can't. I've got a lot of athletic players. I need to, I need to play them. I need to play athleticism. We need to have a high line. We need to be aggressive because what we've got is America's athleticism. Plus, we know how to play the game better than they do. Duh, that's what he should do. <laughs> Well, there needs to be a solution, doesn't there, for Gareth Southgate? And it was interesting, Johnny, to hear you talk about, you know, finding a, a remedy for Kane and Sterling or really just knowing what to do with them to get to the best out of them consistently. Ivan Tony is in the England squad. A lot of people discussing whether he could potentially play in a team. Now, if it's a full 3-3, there's going to be one up front. We know it's going to be Harry Kane. But could we slightly tweak the system that was a 3-4-3 a three, three into a 3-4-1-2 and maybe see Tony as a partner for Kane? Don't know what that means for Raheem Sterling, though. Tony's a pretty interesting player. He's quite, you know, he could play, I think, wide in a 3-4-3 as well, actually. There's a lot to his game. He, he, he can play a really good pass. He can, he can roam out to those positions. Uh, he's just a very difficult player to play against, whatever he's doing on the forward line. I think... The biggest one, of the biggest issues in terms of the forward uh, department is the lack of understudy to Kane, actually, and that's really what we're looking at Tony as being. Uh, you know, it's not going to be Calvert Lewin who's regressed and been injured uh, since the Euros, and I don't think Ollie Watkins ever made a convincing case. So I think I'm, I'm really glad Tony's in. I think he's he's a he's he's the most convincing candidate. I actually wonder if Danny Welbeck might have should have made this squad because he would also he's had such a, he's in such great form, such a good pro. Actually, been to three tournaments with England. Slightly surprised he didn't get a look in to to be tried in that understudy role as well. But I'd say I suspect Tony's going to be quite successful in international football. A cane understudy, and yeah, somebody that you could probably put on in games to even play with him. Not probably not start, but you could you could put him in that blend, I reckon, during a match, and and a substitute that that the opposition wouldn't want to see coming on, because as I say, he's, he's so awkward to play against. 
Alison, your views on Ivan Tony. You've written about him in the Times. Could he be a star in a three-line shirt? No, I think he could. I, I agree with Johnny. Actually, I do. I don't think. I don't think um, Gareth Southgate will do this. But I think you could play. I think you could play Tony and Kane together. I think actually they are the perfect partnership because let's not forget Harry Kane will drop as deep as deep needs. He doesn't just loiter around on the shoulder of the last defender waiting for a moment. He's not like that. He, he, he'll drop very deep. And Tony, if you've watched Tony at all, he covers more ground, I think, than mm. most strikers in the Premier League. He pops up everywhere. He can, you know, and, and if together they were able to, I know we've only got two games, but he really ought, Gareth Southgate really ought to try and see how they work together because I think it could be a bit like Son and Kane at Spurs because that, because of the, the, the amount of energy, movement, and so on. And Tony's depicted as quite um, arrogant, I think, and he might be as a personality, someone who speaks his mind, but on the pitch, he's very unselfish. You know, he will, he's very keen to provide the assist. He's very keen to hog the touchline if that's what the game requires. He'll make runs for anyone who's got a decent pass in them to find him. And Kane has sort of evolved as, as the same as someone who will do what's best for the team. So I could see them actually, I don't think this will happen, but I think they could work really, really well together. And I think defences from any nation would think, oh no, are we going to handle mm. this? Because how do you how do you quickly work out how to mark them and what space to fill? It, they, would be, they would be a handful, definitely. I really tend to agree with that. I mean, I would love to see it, but everything that we're discussing points towards some sort of tactical invention, some sort of change from Gareth Southgate and whether he will feel on solid ground enough to change England at this point in time, two games out from a World mm. Cup. I'm just not sure. But but I actually think the situation does call for something different. I don't know exactly what, but I, he has to, in these two games, try and show us that he's been thinking about a new England, a different England that maybe. You know, if they can't continue in a 3-4-3, have something to show at the World Cup. Because at this point in time, they're not going to have a great World Cup if this form continues. I'll tell you another issue as well with the forwards is Foden and Saka. They're both outstanding. And I'd like to see both of them play, but I think Kane and Sterling have to play. We've talked about Tony being a a candidate. How do you get both Foden and, and, and Saka in? And again, I feel that that's something that hasn't adequately been explored and here we are really close to the tournament without an answer to that particular question. But maybe Foden could have been given more mileage in the number 10 role, which he uh, he, he had a one game against Andorra, which you know, looked pretty good as you'd expect. But um, yeah, that, that's another issue. Facing, leaving one of those two outstanding talents on the bench as well is, is, seems like a bit of a waste. Got to ask you, Alison, just finally on the England squad, do, do you think it is last chance saloon for Trent Alexander-Arnold to force his way into the England squad. Remember, there's 26 going, an extra three. Do, do you think that he will get one of those spaces? It would be madness if he didn't. It wouldn't surprise me if he didn't, because I don't think I don't think Gareth Southgate favours the sort of player he is and the way he's evolved at Liverpool. I think Gareth is is relatively old-fashioned in his view of you know, you have a template and people do their jobs. And Trent is almost over-adaptable and you, you'll see him popping up in midfield when he quite clearly isn't meant to be there for Liverpool. But it's what he's encouraged to do and it's part of 
a very specific way of training Anfield. And it's not something that Gareth Southgate wants. Gareth Southgate does not want to look up from the dugout and see Trent <laughs> somewhere else. He doesn't. I just don't think he wants to see it. And I don't think he likes the label of someone who is a defender and yet his defending is not considered to be the best thing about his game. Surely it's in the eye of the beholder and the manager should be able to work through what that means for who he deploys. I just don't think it's, I just think it's their scary characteristics for Southgate. I think he wants reliability at the back. He wants someone to, and I think if you shackle Trent, then you're not going to get the best out of him. You want to, you want to find him in these odd, peculiar places and delivering great crosses and just being him. And I think if he's, if his manager is saying, well, all right, I've let you come, but don't be like you are for Liverpool. That isn't going to help him, isn't it? It's not going to help England. It's not going to help anybody. So I think he should be there regardless of whether he plays well or badly or plays at all in the next two games. But it really wouldn't surprise me, even though I think he's hugely talented, if he just didn't, didn't go. England have never lost a game with Trent at right back, by the way. I mean, it, this is another thing that hasn't been a question that hasn't adequately been answered, in my opinion. Gareth has clearly got reservations about him, but where's the evidence in an England shirt for these reservations? I mean, he played in, in, in June. He used Trent when he played 3-4-3 in Hungary, and then he went 4-3-3 in Germany and didn't play him at all. And that seems mad. I, I feel like I've spent this whole time bashing Gareth Southgate, and I really am not an anti-Gareth person at all. I've got a lot of time for Gareth. I think Gareth's done an amazing job so far, but I've been so alarmed about the last six months and, and the drift towards this World Cup without plans being properly sort of finalised and, and looked at and made. And, and I think Trent's another example of it. Can you go to a World Cup and pick four right backs in your squad? I, I, I mean, that still seems crazy. So why would you? And but if but if you, why hasn't something been done to hone to narrow down that those four right backs to to three or two? And what and what is he doing with Trent? We still don't know. So I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop being. <laughs> Exasperated. <laughs> Lyndon Dyke scored two goals last night. I don't really care. <laughs> well, I, I do like. I do like the fact that you paused there. You said I'm not really an an anti Southgate, and I know you wanted to say fan. I know you wanted to say fan, and then you were like, well, oh, "I'm not an England fan. I'm not, not an England fan." Chance. I'll just describe myself as an anti Southgate person. I, I, I like actually, it. Or yeah. I'm not an anti Southgate person. I was trying to find a non pompous way to describe myself as a journalist because. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be very interesting to see how England approach these two games. And of course, we will discuss them with you. We'll be watching very, very closely. So all the reaction to England's game in Milan against Italy will come on Monday. And then, of course, Monday night they face Germany. We'll look ahead to that game as well. Before the end of the podcast, we will discuss events concerning England as they choose to wear the one love armband at Qatar. We'll talk about the lack, seeming lack in the future of any sort of independent regulator. And we'll be asking you which footballer against which animal in what context would the animal or the footballer win? You, you just come with us on this. We'll, uh, we'll discuss all of that a little bit later on on the game podcast. So stay right where you are. So England's captain Harry Kane will be wearing a one love armband for the team's Nations League games and also at the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. The Netherlands actually began the one love campaign. That was before Euro 2020, promoting a diversity and inclusion. It's a message against discrimination. 
Belgium, Denmark, France, Germany, uh, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland and Wales are also going to be supporting the initiative. Their captains will also wear the armband, as I say, at the World Cup, where same-sex relationships and the promotion of same-sex relationships is actually criminalized in Qatar. So it's an important reason for doing so. I think a lot of people left thinking, is it enough? Uh, Martin Ziegler joins us from The Times, who's reported on this. Martin, what's your reaction to this? And do you know why these nations have decided to, to go to Qatar with the armband on? Well, it's, I mean, it's a visible statement, isn't it? Um, which is, I think, that that's the most important thing. Um, I think Wijnaldum wore it first for, for the Netherlands about a year ago. It was their sort of idea. Um, so, it's, yeah, you're going to have the, these countries playing it in Qatar with with the captains having these these rainbow armbands so that it, it it is a highly visible statement in it. and you can say it's a sort of a, a protest against a, a a law which obviously we don't have in in this country and those other european countries i think you should, we shouldn't just focus on that armband thing i think for me a, a sort of more important thing which is going to be less visible but i think more important in many ways is this idea that the countries are going to really push fifa um, to set up a permanent centre for migrant workers in, in Qatar, so that you know, because they you know they they've trumpeted all these law changes to make the legislation better, more rights for workers, but a lot of the companies aren't sort of abiding by these laws, and this seems to be the only way, or at least that that people working in Qatar from other countries can go somewhere to access their rights to get free legal help. Um, something that the International Players Union are also backing. So I think if they can really pressure FIFA and the, the, the hosts to agree to a permanent centre, in, in many ways, that is for the, you know, for the hundreds of thousands of workers who've worked on the World Cup, that's a really important thing if that can happen. Do you think it will, though? I think it'll be difficult, you know, it'll be difficult for them not to do it. I mean, it, you know, whether they set it up and then in a couple of years' time close it down, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. But I, it, it's something that that you know, if enough people put them on the spot about and ask them about, then it's it's something I think that there is a good chance it could happen. Aren't we just um, appeasing people's guilt and conscience here? Because throughout the whole process of preparing for the World Cup, we we know how many um, workers have died and uh, been working in abysmal conditions. And it just, I don't know, just sounds a bit naive and a way of making everyone feel like they can line up and listen to their national anthems and not feel really awkward about standing in a staging where they know numerous people were killed building it. So it just, this, it's, it's like a tiny, tiny, thing it doesn't help the people who died doesn't help the families of the people who died and as you say martin it's an easy thing to say yes to and then once the big big juggernaut that is the world cup party leaves the building then they can do what they want no one and no one will go and inspect and no one will care and qatar will have had what it wanted out of it and i don't i i just think to to to, to even suggest that this makes everything okay isn't okay no, absolutely. I don't think anyone is suggesting that. Um, and I think that the, the, the nine countries are saying that they're going to keep pushing FIFA to make sure that the compensation is paid to those families whose workers 
killed or injured on on World Cup related projects. Um, it, it, you're right. It, it, it's a really difficult one for football, and there are, there are lots of strong arguments as to whether you know this World Cup should have been closed down ten years ago. But you know, it, it's it's probably too late. I mean, it is too late, isn't it? I mean, let's let's face it. It's it's too late. So you, you know, you 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 try and do the best you can now. A lot of people being sort of sneered at the armbands, although it's just a sort of, it's an empty gesture. But maybe you know, maybe it is slightly. But on the other hand, you didn't have you know people happy to go and get box or play football or have do Formula One racing in Saudi Arabia. They have probably more stringent laws on same-sex um, relationships than they do in Qatar, and that's uh, and. You know that's all fine. You know, no, 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 that doesn't even seem to be an issue, does it? Well, we, 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 this is the get out for everyone, isn't it? There's always someone worse somewhere else, so it doesn't matter. But it still does matter because of the attention the World Cup gets. I personally yeah, don't, don't. I personally would not compete in Saudi Arabia, but people have to live with their conscience. The point is, when it comes to the World Cup, there are so many sports people involved. It's not just one boxer deciding. I can handle this. You've got people who want to represent their country, feel very strongly, maybe feel incredibly patriotic. Maybe international football is their priority. Playing for their country is all that matters to them more than anything else. And to say, no, I, on moral grounds, I can't go to this World Cup. That would be, they would let their family down. And they, would feel, they would feel awful. And this is a way of making those people who probably only feel varying degrees of what I've just described, making those people people feel like I can go now with a clear conscience. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I I just think it, some some of these gestures, you know, they're, they're, they're better than nothing, aren't they? And, it, and it's it is going to be a high highly visible thing if you if you have those. Are they better than nothing though? Because you're sort of yeah. you're sort of you're sort of giving the green light. Sorry, I'm not arguing with you or at you, Martin. I'm just airing this as a you know because we're talking about it. I, it's you could argue you're sort of you're sort of pandering to it all by saying if we do these gestures, everything's all right. We've we've helped things along. Actually, by being there, we're doing good. We've made the world a better place. And. It, and that narrative will, I think, grow as we get closer to the World Cup, and certainly while we're watching the World Cup. Though I think commentators will say, "Oh, look! If you're wondering what Harry Kane's wearing on his shirt," and then they'll explain, and they'll feel really good about it. It's not—it's not the same as an actual protest or or doing things that hurt the country. That's doing things we think are immoral. Well, I mean, I think the you know the, there are that's a good points, and it's whether. That's the whole sort of, you know, thrust of whether people should boycott the tournament or not. And you know, if you are going to boycott the tournament, that's a, that's a, that's obviously a very that would be a very strong statement. But I mean, not seen much sign of that so far. Johnny, what do you think about all of this? Because I think there are some people that say one love. What does it mean? The the rainbow flag, the LGBTQ plus rainbow flag that we're familiar with isn't actually the colours that we see on the armband. That's another thing that I think people have highlighted. But also, I think as, as the others have said, it feels very late. Something could have been said and done if, if teams were that passionate about this quite some time ago. Yeah, I, I find it pretty vacuous. I find it pretty corporate, the, the way this has been handled by the FA. As you say, Hugh, 
it's just taken a long time. The, the initial protest about Qatar made by other teams, by the Norwegians and the, the followed by the Dutch and the and, and the Germans when the players wore T-shirts, sort of saying human rights. That was that was back in March 2021. England have been talking about making a stand ever since then, but every time. You know, we as the press have asked either Gareth Southgate about it or the FA themselves. There's been some reason to kick it down the road. It's been, oh, we need to get the Euros out of the way. Oh, we need to qualify for the World Cup first. Oh, we need to do some more consulting. Oh, Mark Bullingham needs to go on another fact-finding mission. And it's felt rather like throughout the process that they've been, you know, trying to put it off and put it off to the point where the tournament's upon us and it all becomes a bit meaningless. And and. That was my kind of cynical fear before yesterday. And I have to say, seeing the FA's pretty bland statement um, accompanying the imagery of the, the rainbow armband and looking at that armband itself and, and thinking that they think this is it. You know, I'm afraid my, my fears feel like they've been confirmed. The, the, the trouble with this is, you know, it. Fine, wear the armband, great. I mean, there are issues, as you say, Hugh, with that, whether that armband even represents LGBTQ communities properly and the issues properly, that there are issues even with that. And there's a concept known as pinkwashing, which is where you try and virtue signal about how great you are about human rights by you know, looking for an easy gain on this particular issue. And perhaps there's an element of that going on from England. Um, but... You, you know, you could wear the armband, but go a lot, lot further. One thing that jars me is that we've got Mark Bullingham today, um, while on the one hand sort of trumpeting the armband, on the other hand admitting um, in Henry's piece that a lot of um, LGBTQ England fans are afraid to travel. You know, so, oh, we're going to wear the armband, but our fans are afraid to travel. That in itself seems pretty appalling. And makes me wonder how meaningful this protest is. And then on the issue of, I mean, Mark, Martin's right to raise, you know, I, I think migrant workers is a, a long-standing issue that hasn't been tackled properly by football, and certainly not by um, by this protest. Yet, I mean, England want to, I think it's lobby for an update Oh, and that's so pathetic. What, what does that mean? Lobby for an update on the Migrant Workers Centre. They should be demanding the Migrant Workers Centre, not lobbying for an update on it. And then why not, why not back the Pay Up FIFA campaign, which Amnesty and other human rights groups are behind? And that's a, that's a campaign asking FIFA directly to pay out of the huge revenues that they make from the World Cup, asking them to directly pay compensation to... The, the families of, of, of workers who've died in World Cup construction and enshrining some principle going forward so that we, we then carry that forward into future tournaments because workers died building the World Cup stadiums in Russia, for example, um, and nothing was done about that. So going forward, we, we, we need to have uh, a responsibility taken by FIFA and, and, and other football authorities that if you're going to stage a football tournament, then there have to be these conditions uh, for workers in the construction of stadiums. And, and if these, these conditions and rights aren't given, then there's going to be consequences. And FIFA themselves should be paying for this. Um, and that, to me, would be a lot more meaningful than any of this, which just, as I say, feels pretty corporate, pretty vacuous, and leaves me a little bit 
depressed over just the whole 18 month cycle and, and, and how we've waited all this time and just got to this sort of pretty bland gesture. Do you agree with that, Alison? Yeah, I'm not going to say 100% because that's a cliche, but yeah, 100%. It's <laughs> if after all, all the years that they've had to come up with a really crappy badge and uh, a focus group is not good enough at all. Is it wrong of me to say that I kind of feel for the likes of Harry Kane, these captains, some of these players, even some of those at the FA as well, thrust into what could be, you know, a hugely political situation instead of especially those players just wanting to go and represent their country at what should be, for many of them, the highlights of, of their careers. But it's not, thrusting, my... it's not thrusting, uh, Hugh, is it? It's not happened overnight, otherwise I'd agree with you. We've known about this for a long, long time. No one's woken up this morning, oh my God, we're going to Qatar. I hadn't thought about that. What does that mean? Right. Quick, get a badge on my shirt. That, hasn't, that isn't what's happened, is it? But by the way, I'm not, I, I wouldn't be blaming Harry Kane and the, and the players. I think this is, I think they, they've been hamstrung and, and limited in what they've been able to do by, by the, the FA's um, sort of taking charge of this issue and, and trying to water it down as much as possible. So, you know, as I said, they've had plenty of time anyway, and they, they, they could have done an organic thing like the, the Norwegians and the Dutch did all those months ago. But... My, my focus wouldn't necessarily be on, on Kane and the players. It would be on how, as a corporation, the FA have, have handled it. Well, you know, that, and that's precisely the point, I think. What is the FA? Well, in this instance, the FA represents the players. You can't have individual players taking, you know, when they're representing their country, taking different stances on issues, whether they be regulations to do with the game of football or political issues. You... You have to, if you're going to perform well and act as a group, then you have to expect, expect your governing body to act on your behalf in a progressive way, an admirable way. And you, you as the player, you have to hope they do that. It's very, I think it is, I agree with you, it, Johnny, it's very hard for an individual player to, tr to try and <laughs> solve the problem or come up with something inventive. It's it's not really their role in this instance. And that, because like I said earlier, you know, for some players missing out on the World Cup, which is probably their ultimate sanction, isn't it? To say, I'm not going and I'm not going for these reasons. And I will talk publicly about why I'm not going for these reasons. They will hurt not just themselves, they'll hurt their country, their teammates, their families. It's, a, it's asking a lot for an individual player to react to this. They have to assume that their governing body will, yeah. will do something that, is appropriate and it doesn't just doesn't look so so weak it this is what's annoying is that they've had so long and it's the response is 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 almost negligible but is it too much to ask our athletes in globally athletes to stand up for the right thing it's sort of the, the history the legacy of sport through many many uh, decades and many many different political issues that athletes have made a stand. Imagine the power of a Cristiano Ronaldo or a Lionel Messi standing up vocally for these issues, even visually during the competition in Qatar. You know, I, I'm one of those people that I, I honestly think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's unfair. I agree. It's something that you can't put onto the players. I don't want to put it onto them. But if you're in that position and you have that power, you know, there is a huge responsibility and, and you, you can, I still think sport can change the world. So 
is it too much to ask of, of those figures to say something the likes of Harry Kane? No, because is it is it productive for Harry Kane or whoever to... You see, you start delegating... You see, you've gone to Harry Kane because he's the captain. So immediately, if he speaks, he's we automatically assume he's speaking on behalf of his fellow players because he's the spokesman for the players. And there'll be players who really don't care and there'll be players who think it's not our place to talk about politics. So you, that's, a, that's a minefield for Harry Kane, isn't it? So you need a player who isn't necessarily the captain, but a player who just has a very, very strong feeling and the backing of maybe of, of friends and family to say say something more coherent than we're getting. And it, it, would, it would create headlines. And if they felt that strongly, they might feel good about it. But it just all comes back to what I said about is it, that isn't fair that somebody who didn't choose for the World Cup to be in a country like Qatar to then miss the World Cup because it's in a, being held in a country where they don't agree with the various political stances of that country. And all that happens is they don't go to the World Cup and the World Cup still happens. And once it gets going, people aren't going to talk too off, too much about the, the one player who isn't there if they've gone, you know, done the ultimate thing is that I'm just not going. The brave thing to do is to go, I suppose, compete, but in every interview, express how uncomfortable you are and how you would have preferred it not to be there. And I think that would be brave because it, it might impact on your performance. It might impact on whether you're selected. It would certainly be a diversion. You know, it comes down to the fact that if, you, if you're sending a team, you want them to perform well, which means that you create a bubble for them. They concentrate only on tactics and camaraderie. So they would want the FA to say the things they might say. But they were assuming that every single England player feels the same way about this. And I suspect they do not. And I suspect there are some who don't think a lot about it at all. Because then, well, maybe some of the England team look at David Beckham and thinking, well, well he's been paid a couple of hundred million dollars to be an ambassador for Qatar. And if it's all right for him, why should we get involved? I'm sure there's a bit of feeling like that. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure there is. And look, I think it's an issue that we're going to hear more about as we get towards the World Cup from from other nations and other players. But, you know, being the captain of, of a, a country like England and any international team it does have added responsibilities. It does have an added role. Again, I, I don't want to pressurise Harry Kane, but I, I think if he spoke as an individual, given the figure that he is in the game, I, know, I don't know if everyone would see that as being him speaking for everyone up. You know, the same with, I think, the likes of Messi and Ronaldo. I think the headlines would be all about this huge figure in the sporting world, in the world of football, at the World Cup, having something special to say. Maybe, look, maybe Harry Kane and Messi and Ronaldo are in different categories in, in that regard. I did want to ask you, Martin, though, about another story that you've been writing about this week. It involves the new government under Liz Truss, um, considering putting plans for the independent football regulator. We've heard so much about that for the last year or so. Putting that on hold and then giving the game a fixed deadline to come up with an acceptable alternative. What does this mean? Well, I think we've seen from Liz Truss that she doesn't like regulation. She's going to scrap the limit on bankers' bonuses. She's very much a sort of free market person. And from what I understand, the, the preferred approach is, is not to proceed with the white paper for a statutory independent regulator, but actually to give 
football the opportunity of the fixed deadline to come up with its own solution. So if this is like the FA setting up a new sort of regulatory body sitting alongside it, perhaps something like that, which the Premier League and the EFL will agree and the, the extra money is paid out by the Premier League as part of its new deal uh, so that the EFL could get some, something like £170 million more a year, then everybody, the government would sort of step aside. That's obviously infuriated the likes of Gary Neville and others who've been campaigning for an independent regulator for years. How big a blow do you think this would be to everyone in, in, in the game? I mean, my only reservation about the independent regulator was that people were seeing it as some sort of panacea that was going to fix all the ills of the game. And I wasn't quite sure it would. So it's... So I'm not sure it, it may not be the sort of biggest disaster if you get a proper agreement and a proper body, but it doesn't have to be set up by the government. Maybe, maybe it could work, but it, I, mean, I can certainly see there are so many issues facing the conflicts of interest, financial distribution, imbalances, everything, governance, that um, something clearly needs to be done. Johnny, is it a blow for you? It is. I mean, I, I do find it hard to get too worked up about, you know, the regulator question. I, I think there should be one, but it's not something that, you know, I, I, I guess gets my juices flowing or whatever the right way to put it is. I mean, it's it feels like something needs to be done to address or to safeguard the, 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 the sort of balances and structure in football in terms of ownership, in terms of revenue distribution, and, and that what we've got at the moment is is kind of unregulated or unfettered um, capitalism, which, you know, probably doesn't really work in sport or doesn't work for our sports. So it feels like something should be done. The regulator has been the most prominent suggestion to address that. And in lieu of anything else, I kind of think, yeah, well, let's let's try having a regulator and see if that, that works. As Martin said, you know, we've now got a, a prime minister who's instinctively against any kind of regulation. And it's not a real is that, that this is being sort of kicked down the road. But I think the bigger issue is, OK, if we're not going to have a regulator, what are we going to try and do to, to address what we've been talking about for years, which is protecting the, the pyramid, as it were? While allowing, we have to recognise the, the the biggest clubs and businesses to to grow and make their money and, and all that kind of stuff as well. You know, we need we need to do something. So yeah, something must be done. I've just I've just criticised the FA for being vacuous, and I've just come up with something must be done. I suppose is my solution. But if not, if, <laughs> if, if not a regulator, we need these. We do need something. I agree with you both, but I do feel you know the Tracy Crouch panel. I know. They did an awful lot of research. There was hours and hours, and they spoke to everyone involved, and they spoke crucially to highly engaged supporters, you know, intelligent ones who are invested heavily in their sport from all the different levels of the pyramid. They spoke to the people who run the game. They they did take it seriously, this review panel, and they came up with the solution, the suggested solution for an independent regulator. And then, then if that is just, you know, dropped at the first change mm. in government, you think, well, it's not just that it's not just the fact that Liz Trust doesn't like regulation. You're sort of ignoring the fact that a lot of effort went into tr actually trying to get down mm. to the nitty gritty of how to make football more accountable and 
you know, something more secure for, for the fan bases. And that's been ignored. So really what, what we're saying here is that the current government don't care. I don't care about football. They don't see it as a vote winner. They don't think the people who go to games are necessarily the sort of people they need to pander to to win votes. So they've just forgotten about it. It's the whole thing is a complete waste of time. If that's the headline headline reaction to the panel is to ditch it, then you just the government's saying we don't care. We don't care about football. Mm. And it's like you may as well start start all over again. But they're not going to because it's there's no there's no impetus now. It's I think it's it's it is. It's not hugely significant because we didn't have one. We've not lost anything we've got, so we're not going to miss it. But I do think it's depressing in terms of what it signifies. I tend to agree with your view, Alison, I've got to say. Again, I mean, we've spoken about it so much, but I just think there needs to be a layer there that protects football clubs as, you know, a, a central part of so many communities throughout the country and football, you know, and its cultural significance as well. And I just don't see that that buffer being there. I'm not saying that you needed to have something that was totally in control of football as a whole and something that just reached every single part of the game and was in control of every single part of the game. But I think a few simple steps, a few simple rules that would have stopped some of the you know issues that we've had over owners and directors, for example, could have just been easily put in by legislation and I don't think would have massively changed the game in this country. So in that regard, I'm pretty sad about it as a fan. I didn't think it was going to, you know, cure all of the ills of the game, but I do think again, just we need something. And the idea that we're going to continue with things as Mm. they are is pretty depressing for Mm. me personally. Anyway, I'm sure the conversation will return um, at some point in the future. In what shape or form, I'm not sure. But anyway, our thanks to Martin Ziegler uh, for joining us for this portion of the podcast. We'll have a bit of fun next on The Game. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Let's finish on the game podcast today. I don't know if any of you have seen Tom Roddy, a wonderful interview done with the former Italy and Juventus defender Giorgio Chiellini, now a teammate of Gareth Bale at LAFC. You can check it out in the Times. He had some intriguing things to say, um, including 
about Harry Maguire. So just have a quick listen to an excerpt from the interview, uh, Tom Roddy speaking to Giorgio Chiellini. Tomori is growing up very well the last year in Milan and surprised me, to be honest, because I've seen in Chelsea, but I don't think could be stronger in the box and uh, attention uh, for 90 minutes. Uh, he's really surprised me. He did a fantastic season. He's one of the key of the Milan winning last year. And now I'm happy he, he start to be called uh, continually in uh, in national team. I love Kyle Walker. Is something unbelievable. I don't know how it's possible. Uh, it's so fast, so strong. And uh, it, it's really, it could really athletics and uh, 100 meters with Jacobs, maybe, because it, it's something fantastic. I'm, I apologize. I'm sad for Maguire situation because I think he's a good player. Uh, but just because he's being paid uh, 80 million, uh, he had to to be the best in the world every match. It's, it's not the truth. Sometimes the value of the market is depend on many aspects you can control, and and uh, it, it's not your fault. Maguire is a good player, and with Son, so uh, I think is uh, a good duo. But okay, Maguire uh, maybe is not real Ferdinand, but it, it, it's good enough. And, 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 but with this situation, I think. Uh, is not helping you to to do his best, but I I, I hope that the situation will change in the next uh, weeks, uh, months. Uh, it's very important for England had him uh, at one hundred percent mentally for the World Cup. If you want to win the World Cup, it's impossible to do it with some problem in the key players. What I actually loved most about that clip, though, is the idea that Giorgio Chiellini thinks Kyle Walker is so quick that he could race Jaguars, which got me thinking about footballers versus animals in different situations. All right. It's just these are simple questions. I, I thought long and hard about these. OK. And I just want you, Alison and Johnny, to, to tell me what you think. I'm going to start with Harry Maguire because he got mentioned. I thought what animal would be best suited to going up against Harry Maguire? So. If this were a competition, Harry Maguire versus a bull, the context is they're in a china shop. They need to smash as many things as possible within 30 seconds. Who wins, the bull or Harry Maguire? Alison Rudd. (laughs) (laughs) Well, clearly Harry Maguire in a china shop. Come on. I can see him. I can see him getting to the teapot at the top of the shelf well before the bull does. Johnny, is it Harry as well for you? Oh, I think the bull would get a run on Harry and get to the China first. <laughs> I, I think, I think. listen, they, they both got the stature, but the bull's got the speed out of the pair, all right? He will be faster around the shop in 30 seconds. That is a fact. I've gone for Phil Foden taking on a python, but they are in a maze, a race to the finish. Who gets out of the labyrinth first, the python or Phil Foden? Tough, isn't it, Alison? <laughs> <laughs> this is all I'm saying. These questions are hard. I Johnny? think the python, the python uh, cheats. The python cheats and just goes straight under the hedge. So that's that. Yeah, I don't know. But Phil can go off either foot, can't he? Both directions. I'd like to think <laughs> Phil's agility would win. Honestly, these questions get sillier and sillier. So you're going to have to come with me on this. I've gone for Roy Keane versus a seal. I don't know if you've seen those. I don't know if you've seen those videos on social media at the Slapping World Championships with two grown men are slapping the life out of each other. So who wins, the Seal or Roy Keane? Who's going to lose consciousness first? 
<laughs> Roy Keane would stare the the seal out, surely. Just just look at him. <laughs> I don't know. The seal would just be doing his job. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think the seal probably wins. Right, Adama <clears throat> Traore <clears throat> arm wrestling against an orangutan. Alison Rudd, who wins the arm wrestle? Wrestling against orangutan. Well, if the orangutan is wearing sun lotion, the orangutan wins. But the orangutan will not mm. be wearing sun lotion or oil, so Triori would win. Oh, I having followed Adama's career, I think on some days Adama would win easily, and on other days, for some, whatever reason, he just wouldn't turn up. <laughs> Jack Grealish, this is calf raises most in a minute versus a racehorse, thoroughbred. Alison Rudd. Stronger legs, Jack Grealish or a horse? Oh, I don't rate Jack Grealish's legs, so the racehorse. <laughs> Johnny? <laughs> I do rate Jack Grealish's legs, but um, uh, I think it might be, it'll be close, but I'd want Graham Sooners analysing. Okay, we'll come to Sooners a little bit later on. Um, Bruno Fernandes, this is a one-mile waddle, okay? The Premier League's best waddler versus a penguin in Antarctica over a one-mile distance. You can only waddle. You cannot burst into even a jog. Who's the best waddler, Bruno or a penguin? Alison Rudd. Bruno. Johnny? <laughs> Bruno, does he waddle? Is that, oh, is he that his running style? He, okay. he does. Uh, yeah, he does. Uh, okay, well, I'll go, I'll go with your judgment. You, you watch a lot of Man United. <laughs> I'll, I'll go for Bruno, just as a fan. John McGinn, 100 kilograms squats. Most in 30 oh. seconds. He's taking on a baboon. Okay, we know he's got the power in the legs, John McGinn, but we know the strength of a baboon as well. No, mentally, Johnny, mentally, with... mentally, John McGinn wins that. Oh. Okay, okay. That, that, that backside could achieve anything. It scored a goal last <laughs> night, so John McGinn every time. <laughs> right, I, I thought that should have been disallowed. It was too much bum to a uh, to defender, in my, in my opinion. Anyway, um, Cristiano Ronaldo <laughs> on a ski jump versus a flamingo so this is all about aerodynamics who is more aerodynamic cristiano or a flamingo on a ski jump through the air alison rudd cristiano has the longer neck so i think <laughs> i think he'd do it johnny oh cristiano but eric black of aberdeen would have uh, from the 1980s would have beaten both of them okay <laughs> virgil van dyke <laughs> boxing versus a kangaroo Tough one to call here. Alison Rudd. As the kangaroo had a recent ACL operation. <laughs> I'm going to say no. Then the kangaroo. <laughs> Johnny? He's too, Virgil's too nice to hurt anyone. He wouldn't it'd be the kangaroo. Right, and finally... This finally, is the really? One, I, I was hoping this would go on much longer, Hugh. No, no, no. This is finally it. Really? Graham Sooness. These are important questions, Alison Rudd. I don't like your tone. <laughs> Graham Sooness wrestling a bear, and probably the toughest one as well for the, for the end. What sort of bear? What sort of bear? Brown. Brown bear. Mother bear or father bear? Graham Sooness might want to wrestle the, have, the mother, but we'll say father. <laughs> have, bears, have bears got knees? Ask a, ask a biologist. Have, have, bear, have bears mm. got knees? I'm going to say Yes. In that case, Suey, I mean, he just, he just, yeah, take take his ligaments as he did it quite a few times in his career. <laughs> right, have, all the important I have, questions. I have heard, but I have heard it, to defeat a brown bear, you have to curl up in a fetal position and take the blows, which Graeme Sooners 
no. proud man as he is would not do. So no. exactly. end up, he would end up losing. I see. Okay, and there you have it. All the important questions answered on the game podcast, as always. So you, I, I made, a... you made me, Hugh, you made me do some homework. I thought I was doing homework. So I bothered Googling what the predator of a peacock was because I was going to say Paolo Maldini 2005 Champions League final was a peacock and every Liverpool player was a jungle cat and or mongoose I'm told that they they eat peacocks I thought that's where you were going so you actually did proper research and came up with your own no Alison Rudd that's completely fine in fact I commend you for it that level of detail is exactly what we need on this podcast but no, it was just me asking you absolutely <laughs> silly and ridiculous <laughs> questions about whether footballers would be animals in sporting events, to be perfectly honest. You guys let us know your answers and maybe your suggestions as well at Time Sport on social media. Make sure you check us out. Thank you for listening, by the way. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast as well. Times.co.uk forward slash the game is where you need to go. And we will see you on Monday. Take care. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.